I'm your host, Olivia, and this is Troubled Minds. Troubled Minds is a true crime podcast designed to give you a look into the psychology behind America's most infamous. If you have any feedback, concerns, questions, or requests, you can contact me at troubledmindsthepodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking to find my sources, go ahead and visit the links in the description. I'm going to provide a trigger warning for discussion of severe mental illness and violent events. Welcome to Episode 3, Conversations with Harvey. Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode three, Conversations with Harvey. I apologize for the break, but this episode has a really interesting psychological analysis, so we're definitely coming back with a bang. So, the story begins with a messy situation taking place in Brooklyn, New York. A woman named Betty Broder was abandoned by her husband, Tony Falco, whom she had a daughter with. Broder and Falco never terminated their marriage, and she went on to have an affair with a married man named Joseph Kleinman. Broder became pregnant with his child and kept it despite the fact that Kleinman wanted her to get rid of it. Instead, Broder claimed the baby as her husband's, and on June 1st of 1953, Richard David Falco was born. Broder put Richard up for adoption, and he was given to a couple named Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, who gave him a name that newspapers listed for years to come. David Berkowitz, later known to the public as the son of Sam. Growing up, David Berkowitz wasn't exactly described as a normal child. Berkowitz did take interest in some typical activities, such as baseball, but he demonstrated more interest in petty theft and starting fires. People who knew Berkowitz during his childhood said he was considered a bully by the locals. Berkowitz actually ended up dropping out of school at a pretty early age. He and his adoptive father had a pretty rocky relationship, and this only worsened when his mother died when Berkowitz was only 13 years old. Berkowitz's relationship with his father took on even more tension when his father found another woman later in life. Berkowitz had always been closer to his mother growing up. He ended up deciding to join the army, where he stayed until 1974. While being exposed to different people and cultures in the army, he adopted Christianity. Berkowitz carried Christianity home with him when he returned. I had trouble finding out if this happened before or after he was deployed, but at some point, his father married the woman Berkowitz didn't like. After this marriage, Berkowitz moved to the Bronx. After coming home from the army, Berkowitz ended up deciding that it was time for him to find his birth mother. Berkowitz came into contact with his mother sometime between 1974 and 1976. He and his birth mother and sister became very close-knit, and for a while, Berkowitz would travel to stay with them often until he learned about the messy origins of his birth. After hearing the full story, Berkowitz drifted from his birth family and eventually stopped visiting them altogether. Berkowitz was reported to have issues with pyromania and aggravated arson throughout his adulthood. Berkowitz recorded a log of over 1,400 fires he had set in the city to cope with emotional distress. At one point, Berkowitz had decided to move in with a couple in New Rochelle, but bolted out with no explanation only two months later without retrieving his deposit. From there, Berkowitz moved to Yonkers, where his documented crimes began. Sometime before the shootings, Berkowitz located two women on Christmas Eve in 1975. He followed the women and attacked them with a knife, leaving one woman, Michelle Foreman, 
badly injured, while the other goes unidentified still today. Foreman was hospitalized following the attack. Berkowitz didn't like his experience with a knife, so he bought a 44 Charter Arms Bulldog revolver, the gun that would soon make him one of New York's most prolific serial killers. In the Bronx during the summer of 1976, 19-year-old Jody Valenti and 18-year-old Donna Loria were sitting in a parked car in front of Loria's apartment. Without warning, several gunshots fired through the vehicle. Valenti survived the attack, but young Donna Loria did not. The shooting was accepted as a random act of violence and ignored by the public while Berkowitz awaited his next assault. The following October, Berkowitz located a young couple in Queens. Carl DeNaro and Rosemary Keenan sat in a parked car when they were ambushed by Berkowitz with his 44 revolver. While DeNaro survived the incident, his friend Keenan succumbed to her injuries. Berkowitz was successful in separating himself from both of the attacks along with keeping the murders low profile. Better yet for Berkowitz, Law enforcement and the media hadn't caught on to the connection between the incidents. The attacks were assumed to be random New York City incidents by the public because Berkowitz attacked randomly and without much premeditation, leading investigators to later classify him as an unorganized serial killer. However, Berkowitz did tend to target white women with dark hair and whoever may be accompanying them. In November of 1776, Berkowitz spotted teenagers Donna DeMasi and Joanne Lamino as they walked home in Queens. Berkowitz attacked the pair with his revolver, leaving them to die in the street. Lamino was paralyzed due to her injuries, while DeMasi recuperated well. Two months later, Berkowitz attacked another couple in Queens. Christine Friend and John Deal were engaged at the time. They sat in a parked car as Berkowitz approached them and fired several shots into the vehicle. Deal recovered from the attack, but his fiancée did not. When investigating the murder of Freund, police began to connect the crimes. The revolver Berkowitz used in the attacks was considered rare, and they were able to determine what kind of people Berkowitz was targeting, and also that the shells used in the attack were all the same. Two months later, Virginia Voskaritian passed away after Berkowitz discreetly shot her as she walked in Queens. This particular event sent the public into an uproar. After this event, an investigation team was put together to examine the crimes. This team was called the Operation Omega Task Force, and it consisted of several hundred officers. The police exhausted every bit of information they received from eyewitnesses, and very soon after the shooting of Voskaritian, Sal Lupo and Judy Placido sat in their car in Queens, ironically talking about the son of Sam when Berkowitz shot through their vehicle. Both Lupo and Placido managed to survive the attack, but Berkowitz wasn't done yet. Berkowitz located another couple in the Bronx, and he shot and killed them both in the street near the place where he committed his third murder. He left a letter next to the bodies of his victims. This is what the son of Sam is most known for. I'll read you the first bit of the letter. Now, I'll also let you know that there are some weird misspellings in here that I'm just going to go ahead and correct as I read. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats our family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. The letter continued on about Father Sam needing blood to restore his youth, and it also announced that the son of Sam does not, quote, belong to Earth 
and finishes the letter saying that he does not want to kill and blesses Queens a happy Easter. Before signing the letter, yours and murder, Mr. Monster. He also warned that he will be back. There's an announcement to police in the middle of the letter, and I'll go ahead and read it for you. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else keep out of my way or you will die. And a month later, Berkowitz sent a letter to the New York Daily News. Here's the first portion of the letter. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. Now, something super interesting. Berkowitz also sent threatening letters to his neighbor, Craig Glassman. Craig Glassman was a police officer, and while parts of the letter threatened Craig Glassman's life and told him to die, other parts of the letter ordered other things of Glassman. I'll go ahead and read it for you. Master Glassman, you are a man with power, the power of darkness. You are hereby ordered to unleash your terror upon the people, destroy all good and ruin people's lives. Begin immediately. Mighty Craig, where is your weapon? If you don't obey these commands, the commands of your father, then you will be punished. I swear, Glassman, your life will be pure hell. The letter was signed, Your brothers and sisters, Craig Darling, Craig Glassman, the cruelest, sickest man on earth, cruel Glassman, cruel Glassman, mean, terrible, cruel, hateful, Craig Glassman, die, Craig, die. Wow. Well, to call that excessive would definitely be a criminal understatement. The next letter to Glassman was found in Berkowitz's car after the investigation, and it read, Because Craig is Craig... So the streets must be filled with Craig, and then death in parentheses, and then the letter continues, and huge drops of lead poured down upon her head until she was dead. Yet the cats still come out at night to mate, and the sparrows still sing in the morning. In the middle of this letter, there are several symbols, a giant X in the very middle and a cross on top, and then the symbol for female, an S, and the symbol for male. Berkowitz's final victims were Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violanti. Although investigators were monitoring Berkowitz's typical homicide scene locations, Berkowitz struck in Brooklyn this time. Berkowitz had expressed favoring Queens in his letter to law enforcement, leaving his next targets unprotected. Moskowitz and Violanti sat in a parked car on the evening of July 30, 1977. Berkowitz fired into the car, killing Moskowitz and blonding Violanti for life. However, a key eyewitness from the attack put Berkowitz away forever. Investigators had already heard numerous reports of a yellow vehicle hanging around crime scenes. They had previously spent a considerable amount of time tracking down yellow cars in an attempt to find Berkowitz. Cecilia Davis watched a man take the parking ticket off of his car on the night of July 30th and promptly told investigators after hearing about the crimes. Law enforcement, who already had suspicions about Berkowitz after identifying his involvement in other New York crimes, was able to track down his vehicle and find the famed 44 caliber revolver. He was then arrested. After Berkowitz's arrest, police searched his apartment. 
who was in bad shape. Murderpedia references occult graffiti on the walls along with his records of arson that he committed over the years. Berkowitz was quick to admit to law enforcement that he was behind the shootings, with his first words after capture actually being, What took you so long? Berkowitz then went on to explain the reasoning behind the shootings. A man named Sam Carr used to live next to Berkowitz with his dog named Harvey. Berkowitz told law enforcement that Harvey was possessed and encouraged Berkowitz to commit violent acts. He also told them that the father Sam, referenced in the letters that Berkowitz sent, was actually his neighbor, Sam Carr. At one point, Berkowitz had sent letters to a new Rochelle family, specifically the family he had previously abandoned randomly after placing a deposit on their rental, wishing Jack Kassara well after an injury. However, Kassara was never injured. Berkowitz signed the letter using his neighbors Mr. and Mrs. Carr's names. This is when Kassara reached out to the Cars and discovered that they too had been receiving weird letters. Berkowitz's infatuation with the Cars progressed and he ended up shooting Harvey. I had a difficult time finding where Harvey's injury fit into the timeline of the murders, but it's an important moment to note. However, Berkowitz wasn't done talking. Now that you know the what, it's time to talk a little bit about the why. There are three main theories to discuss when it comes to David Berkowitz. The first I'd like to talk about actually became a popular theory before Berkowitz was caught. After receiving Berkowitz's first letter, psychiatrists thought he may have paranoid schizophrenia. Students from Radford University's psychology department compiled a list of psychological events in Berkowitz's life that I'll be referencing. The first events in Berkowitz's life that could support a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia actually took place when he was just seven years old. Young Berkowitz suffered two head injuries at this age and another by the time that he was eight. He was also described to have very few friends between the ages of 10 and 14 due to his lack of understanding of social skills. When Berkowitz was 11, he recorded monsters bothering him. Berkowitz repeatedly struggled with these monsters until his 13th birthday. Interestingly, it's also reported that they reappeared in his life later. His teachers also expressed that he was moody and easily upset around this age. Several years later, at age 18, he started experimenting with drugs in the army, marijuana, amphetamines, and LSD. Then, at the age of 22, the same age he began his spree of attacks, he reported hearing voices, including, quote, howling of the demons coming from his neighbor's house. At the age of 23, he wrote a disturbing poem called The Mother of Satan. This is around the time that Berkowitz began his murder spree and started sending disturbing letters to people's houses, further supporting the paranoid schizophrenic theory. However, after his arrest, Berkowitz was quick to admit that his claim of hearing voices from his neighbor's dog was fabricated in order to make himself eligible for an insanity plea. However, as we've recently discussed, there are plenty of documented incidents disconnected from his attempt at an insanity plea that support the diagnosis. So, there are still many who believe the paranoid schizophrenia to be the root cause of his drive to murder. However, there are several other possibilities, a major possibility being brain damage. According to the National Institutes of Health, aggression is usually one of the most frequently reported effects of brain injuries. As I mentioned earlier, Berkowitz had several notable brain injuries during important developmental times throughout his childhood. 
The National Institutes of Health also say that between 11 and 34% of people who have experienced a traumatic brain injury will exhibit higher levels of aggression, and that aggression after brain injuries is often related to depression, frontal lobe lesions, previous issues with psychosocial functioning, and substance abuse, three of which Berkowitz had recorded struggles with. Now, this theory is last but not least. It's one of my favorite theories in terms of intrigue factor. If you've seen The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness on Netflix, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You heard me write sons, multiple sons. This theory existed long before Netflix popularized it, and it began with a man named Maury Terry. Terry was an investigative journalist who believed Berkowitz's ability to evade the police for so long was actually because he acted as part of a cult. A piece of evidence that led him to believe this after Berkowitz's arrest included a collection of perpetrator sketches that looked nothing like Berkowitz, which Terry believed suggested other shooters. Another important finding in his argument can be traced back to Sam Carr, Berkowitz's neighbor and Harvey's owner. Sam Carr had two sons, Michael Carr and John Carr. Berkowitz apparently hung out with these two brothers in a park in Yonkers known for being the home of satanic rituals. Terry assumed that Berkowitz and the brothers were part of a cult called the Children, which would have had distant ties to the Manson family. If you haven't yet heard episode two, Cult Culture, I totally suggest that you check that out to learn more about the Manson family and the prevalence of cults in the 70s overall, if this is something that interests you. However, Terry's theory is widely disagreed with by law enforcement officials. His argument relied heavily on the presence of cults and prop culture at the time and less on physical evidence discovered by police. Berkowitz did make many references to demons and satanic content in the letters he wrote to police and journalists. Berkowitz did make references to demons and satanic content in the letters he wrote to police and journalists, but many attribute these references to religious delusions or attempts to throw off investigators. If you enjoy this concept, I highly suggest you check out the docu-series on Netflix to get a more in-depth description of Terry's findings. Berkowitz is known for many things, but most importantly, he's known for inspiring many public theories. However, what you choose to believe is all up to you. Thanks for listening to episode three, Conversations with Harvey. Please make sure to contact me at troubledmindsthepodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback, questions, concerns, or requests. See you then.